Transportation is a journey connecting us in our everyday lives. This podcast series, TRB's Transportation Explorers, takes you on that journey with meaningful conversations with the experts behind the research. They often have an early eye on how we'll build the transportation of tomorrow. Hi, I'm Elaine Farrell. And I'm Paul Mackey with the Transportation Research Board of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine based in Washington, D.C. On today's podcast, we'll explore with Herbie Lassad, Assistant Deputy Director for the Facilities Management Division at the Department of General Services for the State of California. Herbie has more than 30 years of engineering experience, including as Deputy Division Chief in charge of the Offices of Maintenance, Technical, and Field Support for Caltrans. He's also an active TRB volunteer and currently serves as the Chair of the Subcommittee on Transportation Emergency Management Practices and Innovations. Herbie has also written a TR News article about 9-11 that comes out soon. Herbie, we're so excited to have you here on TRB's podcast. Even 20 years later, after 9-11, emergency management is, is a huge thing. And it seems like we hear every day about a new disaster as a result of, not 9-11, as a result of climate change. And uh, even recently, there's been news coverage stating that climate change has affected more than 85% of the world's population. So let's start with your thoughts on what transportation agencies do to not only recover from these disasters, but to mitigate and, and stop them in their tracks? Thank you for having me. That's a good question. Great question, actually. Recovery is always a challenge, especially funding is an issue. California has mechanisms in place to help restore infrastructure in a resilient manner that also uses sustainability as a forethought, all of this supported by the Federal Highway Administration. So transportation agencies should have similar programs in place to address all probable hazards they may encounter, including those curveballs due to climate change. Depending on where you live in the United States, uh, you may be asked to use the term extreme weather rather than climate change. In my career, I had to do that. But whether you say extreme weather or climate change, the impacts, you know, visually the same. How can we mitigate? Hmm. The smartest thing to do is to identify the type of climate-related impact that may come as one of the many hazards that may come and take a holistic approach to hazard mitigation. This may mean designing the infrastructure for a 500-year storm instead of the 100-year uh, storm. You mentioned funding earlier, and I'm sure you are well aware that the disasters cost a lot of money, $1 billion, sometimes more in some cases per incident. So it seems like preparing for climate change and, and mitigating the factors that lead to climate change can obviously save lives, but also save money. Can you talk about that aspect of it in more detail? You can track and see the impacts from climate change as the, uh, the amount of money we spent on emergency pro projects increased from like 200 million, $125 million a year to one year, almost over a billion dollars. So um, savings, saving lives is paramount, right? Saving money should be secondary to that. Uh, you are correct. Also in the area of saving lives, which really impacted me is that we are shifting from accepting the risk, the loss of life to mitigating for the risk that uh, death and uh, any death is not acceptable. So in terms of saving money, more resilient network lends itself to sustainability, like reduction in litigation, associated costs. Yes, DOTs pay out for accidents and deaths on their system, which can be tens of millions of dollars a year. System disruptions 
may impact mobility, causing losses that may be in the millions of dollars a day for a network that has a high ADP, average daily traffic. These losses may impact the areas, if not the nation's supply chain. So let's look at the cost of the system disruption and dollars and lost time, which we can never recover. Many transportation agencies are still behind in quantifying loss from disruption, loss due to rerouting traffic, closing down highways, et cetera. Some communities may only have one route in or out causing bigger concerns. So in short, the more resilient the road segment is, the bigger return on investment in an economic study for disruption as well as the cost of replacement for the impacted infrastructure will definitely show this. Californians are unique in terms of the types of emergencies they endure. They pretty much run the gamut of forest fires, heat waves, floodings, droughts. So how is California currently strategizing how to deal with all of these issues and what lessons can we learn from what California is doing? California is well positioned to address climate change. We have the biggest economy in the United States and the fifth largest in the world. As you know, uh, Mexico, our partner to the South, for reference of scale, is the 15th largest economy in the world. Governor Newsom signed a $15 billion package to combat climate change in California just recently. This funding will address drought, wildfire uh, risk reduction, sea level rise, investing in projects that would mitigate for extreme heat like urban greening projects, emissions school and transit buses and other state transportation uh, type vehicles. The crucial quote that he made is at the end of the day, we have to deal with the realities of climate change that are here right now. We can't afford to sit back passively and watch the debate unfold in Washington, D.C. So from a transportation agency perspective, developing a plan that addresses those issues that are in line with the state's strategic goals is important that reduces the system impact of climate change. A climate action plan uh, should be developed along with range goals, objectives and strategies for adapting to potential impacts from climate change. Some strategies may include greening the fleet, alternative fuels, use of alternative pavement design that will not add to global warming, converting to LEDs for lighting, signals to conserve energy, working with local partners to find solutions as well. So we should incorporate climate change vulnerability assessment, planning tools, policies, strategies into existing transportation and investment decisions. The biggest thing to learn from California is that the will exists to embrace climate change strategies. There is a way to get it done. Can you put us somewhere in, in place an example of when emergency preparedness has turned out really well, has, has been successfully implemented in California or in another state? Sure. Uh, in California, I was lucky to have another state agency to lean on and provide guidance for emergency management. That's, that was the Governor's Office of Emergency Services. Every state has their own unique disaster types. In California, we have it all. Every FEMA recognized disaster type exists here in our, in our state of California. And I tell people we're the Disneyland of disasters. So many people have come to us from all over the world. But unlike Disneyland, we have to keep the roads open. But we've learned from Florida on mass evacuations. Uh, some of the evacuations might be no notice, dam break or whatever, things like that, where in Florida you might have quite a bit of time to prepare. From Washington State on landslide recovery, from New York, Post Sandy, for example, they use their fire trucks to pump out flooded subways. So um, organizations like TRB, ASHTO, PRC, which is the World Road Association, and many others help organizations to collaborate. And of course, USDOT and FHWA 
as for the local organizations, every disaster or event starts at the local level. And some cities have robust emergency management systems and they can handle almost anything like New York City, San Francisco, et cetera. And state government hopefully will uh, level the playing field for those communities that can't respond. We, we call San Francisco and like LA, the country of LA, the country of San Francisco because their economies are so huge, so robust in everything that they do. Um, successful emergency preparedness would be those states that have a state emergency plan that outlines responsibilities of all stakeholders, public and private entities, and the governance, that's really important, the governance behind the plan. The state emergency plan would have guidance for those developing their sector-specific plan, where there's transportation, communications, public works, engineering, health, et cetera. Then you exercise those plans with the expected disaster type in your jurisdiction, do a post-exercise evaluation. Some of us call it a hot wash. And you close those gaps identified during those exercises. Usually means throwing money at it, but it's good to identify those gaps now. Uh, during an exercise. So when you have the real disaster occur, you've already taken care of all questions, whether it's communications gap, you know, where, whether it's uh, uh, needing staff. You said hot wash. That sounds like a really cool term. Can you enlighten us again? Yeah, um, a lot of stuff is military jargon. So a hot wash is the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's like what occurred that's really well documented? What occurred that's really bad? You document it. And then um, you try to create a report that identifies which areas for you to go and uh, spend resources on to make sure that you close that gap that you had during the exercise. And hot washes and it's an opportunity for everybody to, to speak up. You go around the table and you, you document and then you do a report later on that hopefully addresses a lot of these gaps. And a lot of times it's money. <laughs> So we've talked about California quite a bit. We've talked about other states. We haven't gotten into federal yet. So what would you say to Secretary Pete Buttigieg and President Joe Biden, if you met them, what do you think the priorities are for emergency management that the federal government should focus on? This is a great opportunity, I guess. I hope somebody's listening out there. I'm sure they are. The country as a whole, I think, has the best system in the world to respond to emergencies at the federal level. But every state is different, right, in territories, and the response is different. Some communities are adversely impacted by social class or status. You know, Hurricane Katrina, for example, there was a poor response at the local level, and 1,800 or more of our citizens died. We should never have another incident like that ever happen again. As reference to climate change, you know, like environmental justice and social justice, in our rush to address climate change, let's just make sure that no one gets left behind. It's not just a local or, or national issue, but an international issue. When it comes to climate change, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. We got to address it. We got to think globally. You know, We got to have a plan that addresses like a 10, 20, whatever year plan. I'm sure they have some of these things in place. We got to make sure that we address the other issues to one planet. What's a research question the transportation research community needs to focus on more in terms of emergency preparedness? I think we need to use the data. There's a lot of data out there that we have at hand or have access to. We need to use it more effectively. Look at the disaster types. I'm talking about tornadoes, flooding, hurricanes, just whatever that impact the built environment and use the science and, and engineering to mitigate and address those hazards. Because without engineering, science is just philosophy, right? Engineers make that science into real tangible things. For example, NASA will soon be providing near real-time Earth surface data 
emergency managers through their uh, NISAR project. And I was lucky enough to, to be invited to sit through one of their first discussions and conferences on this. The NASA, they call it the ISORSAR, NISAR mission will measure Earth's changing ecosystems, dynamic surfaces and ice masses, providing information about biomass, natural hazards, sea level rise and groundwater will support a host of other applications. But also they're looking at pre, post earthquake, just anything and everything that would impact us and providing that data for free. When I was at Caltrans, this kind of data was available, but it was very expensive, you know? So now NASA's gonna launch this satellite and it's on their website. So is emergency management community ready to consume this data? I hope they are. There's many programs out there that may enhance what we do in the emergency management field, like USGS's uh, and Caltrans's ShakeCast for earthquakes and the floodcast for flooding. Here's the thing, in the broad sense, earthquakes don't kill people. The buildings and other infrastructure that fall do. Through updates of building codes, the impacts over the years of this hazards have been reduced through science and engineering. No one should have to lose their lives in the hazard that could have been mitigated through science and engineering. So the challenge is have research that can be implemented and not just sit on a shelf, actionable. It's really interesting, Herbie, that your emergency preparedness expertise and work, it's, we, we've touched on local, state, federal, how your work has really touched on so many things. But we also know that you've got a separate business endeavor that you have, I guess you'd call it a business endeavor, uh, working with other countries that sounds like maybe don't necessarily have as much development as California or the U.S. And you've been helping countries, notably Haiti, which you have a company named after, to develop sustainable water sources and safe building foundations and it almost sounds like it's connected to your work at, in California as well. Can you tell us just a little bit about your international work and, and if it is related to California? It's called Haiti Engineering. It's a public 501c3. It's not really my, my company. It's the public's company, right? And after the earthquake in Haiti, we had a director, Randall Iwasaki, a great man, uh, like Randy a lot. And Randy came to me and said, hey, look, you know, a lot of people want to help. You know, what is that we can do? You know, and then I had Cal OES calling me. So I thought about it, you know, how can we you know, have all these engineers and then we have all people that want to donate this and that and give them a mechanism to, to donate, but it had other state agencies that were involved as well. So we put together a bunch of engineers. Um, we went out there a few times and I've been out there a few times also at the University of Kentucky to do research. Uh, one of the things we want to do is like reduce the cost of engineering. They came up with a method that reduced the cost of like owning a Derrick or, or one of these drill rigs that cost maybe half a million to using uh, electronics and had that you hit a, a mallet on uh, to like $15,000. You know, it's just incredible for a small country like that. So we have people that came together. We flew to Haiti a few times. Our biggest project, that, and again, we don't charge anything. It's, it's our time. It's our money that's being donated. Our biggest project is that when we landed in Haiti, Haiti has a rich history, right? Christopher Columbus landed in Haiti. Slavery started in Haiti. You know, and Haiti was the first Black independent country in 1804. So it has one of the first uh, parishes, Catholic parishes in the New World, and it was destroyed, the St. Rose the, the Lima, and the Catholic priest came to me and a bunch of students I brought over there from uh, Cal State uh, San Luis Obispo School of Architecture Engineering, and they asked, they look, you know, he, <laughs> he said that uh, in, in desperation that I need your help because uh, this church is more than just a church, provides food, healthcare, just tons of things. So we took upon ourselves to try to help this church and we wrote project reports, we raised funding. The Catholic Church from our efforts gave us a couple million dollars 
towards rebuilding this church. 10 years later, the structure's up. It has a foundation that's going to last a thousand years. It's designed for the biggest earthquake that can happen there, but it needs to be completed like windows, doors, and things like that. And you can go on Google and fly over and take a look. It's just a beautiful church designed by the Haitian people. So the church there is more than just religion. It, it provides a lot of other resources. So Haiti engineering in Haiti and other places. So look at the, the gaps because Haiti, it could, they couldn't get water. They didn't have generators. Like a little laboratory, take that back to California. Okay, we need to have water. We need to have the emergency generators at our maintenance stations to make sure that we can get fuel to pump our vehicles. Just everything and anything that went wrong over there we looked at our processes over here and we threw money at it and we fixed it. So California has a lot to look and thank Haiti for because uh, their system is more robust by looking at places like Haiti. And uh, for me, I was real lucky to have people in Haiti that I can go and partner with the University of Haiti and things like that. So yes, uh, thank you for asking that question. That just sounds like really great and impactful work. And, and we thank you so much for doing that work. Going back, was there a seed somewhere when you were a kid or maybe a little bit older when you got interested in transportation and emergency management and, and all the stuff that we're talking about? Yes, that's uh, very interesting. I used to go to Haiti as a kid and I got, got interested in architecture and, uh, and growing up in New York City. Uh, I'm a civil engineer who first dreamed of being an architect um, while going to school in New York City. I decided to become an engineer instead for whatever purpose. I just thought an engineer can do a lot more and I can also do architecture if I wanted to. So I worked for New York State Department of Transportation as a construction inspector and I fell in love with transportation. One class that we had was kind of, it, it was an interesting class on transportation. So we had to figure out uh, how wide to make a sidewalk. You know, sidewalks in New York City are wide. People wonder why are they so wide or in DC or wherever, right? Well, the example that, that we had to work with was a subway comes in People have to uh, go up the stairs, might have 3,000 people <laughs> exiting a subway tunnel. So how wide do we make that sidewalk? Not three feet, not four feet. It might be 12, 20 feet wide. So I was hooked and I wanted to be a civil engineer with a transportation focus. Specifically emergency management, growing up in New York City with the World Trade Center as the backdrop, a beacon of where you are. I could walk out my door. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn. I could look and see the World Trade Center, know where Manhattan's at, know where I'm at. I even worked there in one of the basement floors for a company. Um, so after seeing what happened and my friends that were impacted, I have friends that worked in the, in the World Trade Center. The World Trade Center was, I think it still is, owned by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, right? Which is a transportation agency, right? They own the airports and this and that. So some people don't realize that. But they had the engineers on the lower floor and everybody else on the higher floors, you know. As you go up, the price goes up for the real estate, right? So luckily, the engineers that I knew got out. I had a friend that coordinated the debris removal. He worked for a New York City DOT, an engineer. So listening to their stories and impacts to my family that lived there, I was interested in emergency management, infrastructure protection. I led that effort at Caltrans for about 12 years. You know, to me, it was an incredible journey. A lot of sleepless nights and... Uh, as you get older, you know, uh, you got to turn the keys over somebody else that's a little bit younger. So again, an incredible journey that has taken me around the world, helping many countries through USDOT, uh, through uh, World Road Association, helping those countries identify their needs and helping keeping the supply chain to make sure that things like where there's support of Shanghai that we visited and things like that, 40%, you know, like, you know, a lot of things are happening right now with, with these ships that are out in Port of Long Beach and Port of LA. They're stuck out there, right? The supply chain is impacted greatly. So 
making sure that these boats and things can get here. It was part of the job and it's been very interesting, very rewarding. Well, thank you, Herbie Lassad, for talking with us today. Is there anything else you would like to add? Just that climate change, extreme weather, tomato, tomato, whatever you want to call it, it is here and hopefully not the new norm and just a point in time, but it's our time. So we have to do our best to address the impacts for the generations to come using resilience and sustainable methods, and, you know, at the basis of all that we, uh, we do moving forward. And I think for the most part, we can do it. Thank you very much. Thank you for all your time volunteering with the Transportation Research Board and the National Academies and for all your great work, Herbie. And thank you for being on the podcast. GRB's Transportation Explorers is a production of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Ben Brown composed our theme music. The podcast is produced by Paul Mackey and me, Elaine Farrell, and edited by me. Thanks again for tuning into TRB's Transportation Explorers. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. See you next time on the transportation journey.